Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live for Jesus. Well, it's good to be back, or almost back, usually right about there. But you know what they say, the last yard is the longest, so... Uh, For those of you who haven't met me, because I know we've had some new people each week, uh, defies expectations as we've been gathering in a much more uh, confined, uh, less spacious environment, Uh, but we have been meeting and seeing and greeting new people each week. So if you don't know me, my name is Tyler. I serve as the associate pastor here at Journey Church. Uh, I have done so for about the last two years, coming up on 22 months here, and Uh, My job revolves much around discipleship in terms of working with our various discipling ministries, be it kids, youth, students, men's, women's, uh, and even working with the team uh, here in order to maximize the discipling effect of what we are doing on a Sunday morning because we believe that the mission of the local church is to make immature disciples of Jesus Christ to the glory of God And I would add, given the content of 1 John, for our joy. So that's what I do. So if you have any questions about those sorts of things, I'm your guy. You can ask me them. Uh, Preaching and teaching is not my normal duty, but it is my honor to open the word with you this morning. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, would you open them to the letter of 1 John? If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, by the way, 1 John, uh, you can find it in the table of contents, but it's in the back of your Bible, so you're going really far towards the end, and it's actually written with a 1, and then it says John, or it might say the first epistle of John. Epistle's a fancy old word for letter. Uh, We're going to be in chapter 2, which is the big number on the page, and verse 7, which is the smaller number on the page. Uh, And... One of the reasons why I hope you have your Bibles is, as Pastor Jim pointed out, we're not going to have projection for a while, so it's good to get in the habit or back in the habit of bringing a uh, paper Bible with you. Uh, You learn differently looking at a device, looking at a piece of paper, and looking at a book, Uh, so it's good practice to bring the actual book because there's certain things, certain ways in which your mind engages with a piece of technology called a codex, that's what this is, codex, uh, from long ago, your mind engages it with a certain way, and it'll help you learn a little bit better. So you can open your Bibles to 1 John. Since we are expecting God to speak through his word to us this morning, I am going to speak to him first on our behalf and ask him to do so. Just So would you pray f- with me, and then we are going to read through the passage together. Father, holy is your name. You are good, righteous, and true. You are our creator and our king, and you promise to be here, present, and at work with us, to shape us, to form us, to teach us by the reading and teaching of your word, by singing about its principles, its words, its truths. Jesus, you commissioned your church to make disciples, not by human effort, but by faithful ministry of the Holy Spirit. So we ask you now, Father, Son, and Spirit, to be present among us, Holy Spirit, to be working in us, Jesus, to be our head and to be teaching us. And Father, we ask that our, the meditations of our thoughts and the words of our mouth uh, might glorify and honor you this morning. We ask you to, uh, together, God, 
to inform our minds, to pronounce pardon, to pronounce assurance and acceptance of who we are before you, and to spur us on to greater intimacy with you, greater relationship with you through obedience to your commands and through love for one another. Amen. Well, would you read silently along with me as I read 1 John 2, 7 through 11. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you heard, and at the same time, it is new. That I, uh, it is new, uh, a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. But whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brothers in the darkness walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. You know, I already introduced myself as uh, being in charge of our discipling ministries here, and I think thinking about this text in light of discipleship, and in fact, the entire letter of 1 John is really fascinating. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but discipleship or disciple are words today that elude definition for us. The vast majority of Christians actually cannot define either of those words, and so too many informal vocational ministry, many pastors, many church staff cannot define those words. In fact, uh, an evangelical research group named the Barna Group partnered with Navigators Ministry, who we love here, in order to do a study back in 2015 on the state of discipleship in the American church. What they found, uh, President of Barna Group, uh, David Kinnaman, concluded was that a widely held definition remained elusive. Quote, although it's, it may seem like a mere technicality, accurate and relevant terminology and a clear definition are important first steps towards ensuring a church or ministry can effectively grow disciples. David Kinnaman, the president of Barna Group, went on to explain that if the mission of the church is to make immature disciples for Jesus Christ, then it's important that we be able to define those terms, lest we wander off into doing things which are ineffective or actually detract from our ability to make disciples. A biblical understanding and definition of disciple is crucial, otherwise the project of discipleship uh, might, we might end up implementing strategies and technologies which lead us astray or put actual roadblocks up in front of our ability to mature as we ought in Christ. Here at Journey Church, we have sought to resist that trend by seeking a biblical understanding of discipleship which has uh, coalesced around certain language that we use for judging our success in certain discipling ministries and as a criteria as we think about whether we're going to launch new discipleship initiatives, new ministry initiatives, like, for example, our cohort groups that we started last year. So the, techn or the terminology which we have developed uh, is that we seek to grow as disciples by learning about Jesus, by loving like Jesus, and by living for Jesus. Why I think these things are interesting is I see these three themes consistently and constantly in every verse of 1 John. 
It is as if, as if First John is trying to talk about what it means to be a well-rounded disciple and cast a picture of that for us. And in fact, the image I get as I read through the letter of First John is of a telephone. Now, I understand I'm fairly young compared to some of you in here, but there are younger people with me, or in here with us, so bear with me. Telephones, not the kind that we all have in our pockets right now, but they used to be installed on walls. Are you aware of this? And there were cords that were attached to them. Not like a charging cord. I know what you were thinking. You're thinking of a white cord. It's straight. It goes in, and you can unplug it when you need to move. You couldn't do that. In fact, the home I grew up in, which I kid you not, the address, it, my mom still owns the house. The address is 123 Glenwood Drive. So whenever I got pulled over for speeding in high school and the cop would go, where's your address? I would go, 123, and he immediately thought I was lying. <laughs> but first three numbers to come to mind. Anyway, at 123 Glenwood Drive, the phone, when we moved into the house, was installed on the wall in the kitchen slash dining room area, which means if you wanted to have a private conversation, the only thing I could do was take the phone off the wall, pivot a 360, and close the pantry door behind me so that I was standing with my back to the door next to uh, where we kept the macaroni and cheese and the washing machine. And that's where you had private conversations on the phone in my house growing up. Now, all of that is somewhat irrelevant. The important thing actually about that is that my ability to pivot around the corner was made possible by the fact that the phone uh, manufacturers thought you wanted, an, you wanted to be able to wander away from that place on the wall where it was installed, but you didn't want a whole lot of cord hanging around. So what they did is they wrapped the cord around itself so that it was this giant spiral or this coil. So when the phone was not in use, you'd sit there and there was this coiled loop running from the place where it was installed to the receiver that you held to your ear. I think discipleship in 1 John is a lot like that cord. It's a tight coil where these themes that John is talking about consistently double back on each other, such that as you read through 1 John, if you do it slowly, like taking that phone and walking away from the place on the wall, it stretches out into a sort of wave where you start to see these ups and downs, these highs and lows, these rhythms, themes, and patterns. But when you read it all at once, like we did the first week we were in the series, and you contract it all back together, you see this tight coil where John is consistently relating one aspect of discipleship to another aspect of discipleship to a third aspect and bringing it back so that we can see what it looks like to be a well-rounded disciple. In effect, we could say the themes go something like this. He varies the language throughout the five chapters of his letter. But we might say that he talks about wanting to know God in a relational way, to abide in God, and to love God. That would all be one theme. And then he talks about if we are doing that, then we are obeying God, we are walking in the light, and we are living truthfully. That's another theme. And a third theme then presents itself, and that's we are in community, we love the brotherhood, and we are noticing a distinction between us and the world, between Christians and those who do not claim the name of Christ, those who are not filled with the Holy Spirit, and those who are not governed by God's word. And so we see this, and we would take these same ideas, and we could map them loosely onto our three concepts of learning about Jesus, loving like Jesus, and living for Jesus. John coils these concepts around each other because none of them can take place apart. 
In fact, when we isolate them in order to assess our ministries and to reflect on ourselves as we grow as disciples, when we do that, we're doing a synthetic process. We're pulling things apart that aren't meant to be pulled apart, but we're doing so practically just so we can look at one thing and think, where over the course of this year have I grown in my understanding of the gospel, of God, of God's word, of who he is, of who he created me to be, and of how I am to interact with his world and his people? And so we can think about learning, but then we really have to quickly resituate learning back in loving, because learning always takes place, biblically understood, in a community. And that community always is going to propel you, if you've understood the gospel and who God is rightly, it's always going to propel you not inside yourself, but outside of yourself into the church and the world. And so learning really quickly turns to the love, which really quickly turns into living on mission for Jesus Christ. And so we can pull these things apart, but we notice in John that he cannot talk about one without quickly looping in the other and then looping in the next and then coming back to the first and connecting them together in interesting and unique ways. Because a whole disciple, a well-rounded disciple, will always be growing in knowledge and understanding of God, knowledge and understanding of who he is as an individual, the person, the disciple, loving God and the brotherhood and his world, and living for Jesus. Discipleship is all knotted up together. And so I find 1 John a fascinating letter to study just from a professional vocational standpoint of what I am here at this church to do. And I think we see this knottedness together. We see these themes roped in as we look at this text through this. And I've got this printed or some iteration of this printed in the bulletin for you. That there is a renovation of an old command which requires new learning and understanding, which propels us toward one another in love. And that learning and that loving is fundamental to living for Jesus Christ. So that's our thesis statement for the mor this morning. That's what we're looking at, and I'm going to unpack that as we look at 1 John uh, 7 through 11. So we're going to do so by looking at three things he talks about in this section. The old command that was renovated, the darkness which is passing, and the light which is right now shining. So let's look at these first. The old command that is renovated. Last week, Pastor Jim explained how John, in his letter and in his gospel, associates uh, relational intimacy with obedience. That those things are not separate in the Christian faith, but to be relationally intimate with God, to know God as a personal being, is to obey his commandments. In other words, if you want to grow in your faith, if you're thinking, how is it that I get deeper connection with God? How is it that I feel the Holy Spirit greater? How is it that I get more communion with Jesus Christ? Obey God's commands. That's all. Now, that might be difficult. I'm not saying it's easy, but that is the only step. That's John 13 through 17. That's almost the entire content of 1 John. So Jim talked about how relational intimacy and obedience are inseparable in Scripture. That, in other words, knowledge of God is relational, not merely informational. It's person to person, or more accurately, it's person to the tri-personal God. We believe God exists as Father, Son, and Spirit, and so it is relationship with that triune God, which means relationship with each individual of the triune God. And Jim concluded his message talking about how John says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the way in which he, Jesus Christ, walked. 
Now, I think what's happening in this section, in verses 7 through 11, is John feels a response from the audience coming. He thinks about the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, how there were many commands in it, how there was a lot of burden, how Jesus fulfilled all of those things. And I think he feels that his audience is saying, well, what exactly does that imply? What does that require? What does it mean to walk as Jesus walked? And so John gives a very simple and very succinct answer, and that's verses 9 and 10. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. That's what it means to walk as Jesus walked. Very easy, very simple to understand. But at the same time, it gets complicated. Why does it get complicated? Because of this new old dynamic that Jesus says is active. That this command is not old or is not new, but it is in some way new. So let's unpack that and think about it for a minute. First uh, John 2:7, the first part says, "You had it from the beginning." Now, if you're a student of Scripture, if you're a student of the Bible in here, you likely know that John is, we could say generously, and I mean this in all good-heartedness and in the best way possible, but he is obsessed with the book of Genesis. And so when we hear him say, from the beginning, when he uses words like the beginning or phrases like that, we should immediately think, John 1, the beginning was the word, Genesis 1 in the beginning. And so John immediately ties our understanding of the oldness of this command back to the very foundations of creation in Genesis 1.1. In effect, I think what John is saying here is that this command to love our brothers, and by the way, just in case, uh, in case it needs to be said, the word here is literally brothers, but accurately applied, it includes women as well. It has to do with cultural things in terms of how their society was structured. And so it was you could read this as brothers and sisters. But the command to love the brothers and sisters, the church, is tied back to the very fabric and foundation of the world. And this should not surprise us. I mean, think about it. Think back, if you know the book of Genesis, think back to how Genesis begins how man comes on the scene, the creation of mankind. And God has created the world, and he has seen everything in it as good, and then he creates man, and he says, though man is in proper harmony with all of creation, and though man has not sinned and fallen short of God's glory yet, it is not good that man would be alone. Meaning that man, from the very beginning, was designed to be in community. Now, obviously, in Genesis 2, the solution to this particular problem, this shortcoming of primal creation, is the manufacturing of a wife from Adam's side. But if singleness is a true vocation of the Christian life, meaning if there are times that are appropriate where a person would not be married, then we have to understand that the command to not, or the observation that it is not good that man should be alone is not, first and foremost, solved in marriage. That might be the most tight relational intimacy in which it is experienced, but is first and foremost solved in friendship, which, by the way, is the foundation of all good and healthy marriages. Because otherwise, we would, 
if it was true that man should not be alone was only solved in marriage, then we as a church and throughout Christian history should have been promoting marriage above all things because that would be the only way to feel whole. But, and I kid you not, this is hard to understand, the first 500 years of the Christian church was not marked by conferences on marriage, books on marriage, sermon series on marriage, but by singleness. Pastors, as their congregants would study God's word, would have to alleviate concerns that marriage was actually a holy vocation. But the early Christians reading God's word came to the conclusion that I, if I wanted to serve Jesus, ought to be, as Paul says, like him, single, such that I can give my whole life away for the cause of Christ. And so the church throughout every century has recognized the goodness of singleness. It's also one of the reasons why the church doesn't have arranged marriages. We think that it's appropriate from the beginning of your life and at times at the end of your life due to various life circumstances that you are single. And so singleness too is a God-honoring vocation when exercised properly. And so we know then the community, not just marriage, but community, friendship, brotherhood, is fundamental to who God made us to be. And that this command to love the brothers is woven into the fabric of the world. We could see this even further when sin comes onto the scene in the book of Genesis. It, of course, ruptures our relationship with God. In the curse, we find that it ruptures our relationship with creation, that thorns and thistles will now be the produce of our work rather than an easy fruit or crop. But notice as well that it ruptures our relationship with each other. You know, in the Hebrew, Genesis 3 and Genesis 4 are actually not separate chapters. The way Moses framed them, they're one cohesive story that you're supposed to read from the beginning of chapter 3 to the end of chapter 4 as one unit. What are the two main things that happen in human relationships in that one unit? God shows up to Adam. Did you eat of the apple I told you not to? The wife's fault. He blames his closest and only companion. What happens in chapter 4? Two brothers, Cain and Abel, older, younger, the very first murder, a jealous older brother raises his hand in violence against his younger brother. What is Moses trying to tell us with the shape and structure of that story? He's trying to tell us that when sin enters the world, it ruptures all of our relationships that were meant to give us love, meaning, and acceptance. And that means with God first and foremost, but also with creation and importantly with each other. That sin divides us from each other because we were always intended to live in brotherly love with each other. The rest of the narrative of Genesis actually displays this rupture repeatedly. Cain's great-great-great-grandson will be the first person in biblical record to, have, to commit polygamy, marrying two women, and he sings them a song about spousal abuse and violence. Noah, though a righteous man in many ways, is a mean drunk. The stories of brothers in heated and violent rivalry, of sisters jealous of their same husband, of their shared husband, and even family members plotting against one another are riddled throughout the book of Genesis. In fact, based off of my study of the book of Genesis, there's basically one time where in human history everybody gets along. And it's at the Tower of Babel when they're conspiring to commit a rebellion against God. 
We do not have a good track record, but what this all points us back to is from the very fabric of creation before sin entered the world, we were meant for one another. Some point the finger at the Bible saying that it glamorizes things like evil and division and polygamy and rape and abuse and all sorts of things, but that would just be poor reading. The old commandment to love one another was there from the beginning. And it's not only old because it's tied into the fabric of the world, but it's also old for the readers of 1 John, the hearers of the letter originally, because John presumes that they are all Christians. As Pastor Jim said in the first week, the Gospel of John was written so that people might believe, thus written for pre-Christians. The first letter of John is written that people understand their belief for people who are already Christians. And John, in that, says... The old commandment is the word that you have heard. Now, throughout John's writing, what that means is that the old commandment to love the brothers is integral. It is tied in to the gospel message itself. Now, we have to be careful here because we don't want to get this wrong. We are not saved. The gospel is not the message that we are saved through obedience to the law. We are not saved by our ability to keep the command to love the brothers. We are saved by another's law-keeping and another's obedience to God's commands, and that is Jesus Christ. So we want to be careful that we do not add to the work of Christ on our behalf the command, you are saved by grace and your ability to love the church. We don't want to do that. We want to be careful here. So how is it that the command to love the brotherhood is tied into the gospel? I submit to you that this is what it means. The gospel is only possible because Jesus Christ fully embodied this command. That Jesus Christ in his every waking moment on this earth, in his earthly ministry on our behalf, every moment was lived for the glory of God and for the love of others. And that in his obedience to this command, in his following of it, we find the gospel message. And so the hearers of this letter, the res- those who received First John, they already knew this to be true because this command cannot exist apart from the gospel. So if it's old because it's tied to the fabric of creation and it's old because it's tied to the very gospel proclamation they believed, then how is it new? Well, it's new in this way. When Jesus embodied this command, he lived out the love of the brotherhood with flesh and bone in such a way that all of a sudden the vague command to love brothers in the Old Testament was made visible. We could see it. We understood it in a way we hadn't before because he modeled a sacrificial life which brought clarity to the command. God's intention for our love for each other was displayed most perfectly in Christ. And when we are empowered by the Holy Spirit as believers, it is livable in a way that it was not prior to the coming of Christ. That's what it means when Paul or when John writes in verse 8, at the same time it is a new command that I am writing to you, which is true in him. It's a new command because Christ made it new. If this is confusing to you, think about the two ways we use the word new today. You know, we don't use the word new in the same way all the time. 
In fact, we might, use, uh, we might say that sometimes we use the word new to mean something about some relationship to time. Something that is new in relationship to time did not exist before, or did not exist in that state before. So we might use the phrase, uh, a new adult, or for our language, we would say something like a young adult. What's a young adult? It is somebody who previously was not an adult and is now at this time emerging into adulthood. They exist in a new state because of the time. But another way to use the word new is that things can feel new or they can be like new. You can drive a used car off a lot that has been cleaned, detailed, reworked, the engine remodeled, refueled, and it feels new. You might even tell your friends, it is new to me. And so there's two different ways we use the word new. And I think what John is saying here is it's new because it feels new because we have seen it modeled in the sacrificial life of Christ. And now we know. We know from his teaching, we know from his living about what it means to love the brothers. And it can only be true in us because when Christ came and when he modeled it, when he lived it, the darkness started passing away. As John talks about the darkness, there's a couple of things that we should notice. And first of them is that uh, the darkness that is passing away Hating the brothers is a sign of it. I think this is crucial today because so often, and this is true of me as well, when I think about the spiritual darkness of our world, I often associate it with things that I see in headline news. I often associate it with how when I see different trends taking place in the culture, it feels to me as if I'm living in Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. It feels to me as if we are on the precipice of dystopia. Now, I don't know if that feeling is legitimate. I don't know what the future holds. I don't know if I even properly understand all of those trends and all the things that I see and read about. But that is generally the way I think. And John here wants to caution those like me and say, just as much as rampant dehumanizing technology, sexual confusion, and overt uh, pathological drug use is, just as much as those things that Huxley wrote about are signs of the darkness, so too is this, division among the brothers. You know, we live in a time that sociologists characterize with the phrase negative partisanship. Negative partisanship, if you hear the word partisan in there, you can think politics. Negative partisanship is the concept that most people engaged in politics today come up with who they will vote for or what they believe about our political realities of our country based not on information, facts, values, even objective unbiased thinking, but rather on being against what the other guy is for. And so if the Democrats are for that, then I'm for this. If the Republicans are for that, then I'm for this. The more general term is negative epistemology, which is a fancy word. Epistemology means that which you know or how you come to know things. And it's the idea that we develop or we come to believe things to be true simply because the person we don't like believes the opposite. And so we, in defiance, say, well, I'm going to believe differently than you do because I don't like you very much. That's how sociologists describe our world today. A world of division. A world of strife divisiveness. We would be foolish to think that such things cannot sink into the church. 
in order to be wise, we must not think that this is not a trap set for us as well. Journey Church, one of the things that I love about being here is that the culture that Pastor Jim, the elders, and the staff has set is that we are a church that declares boldly, freely, and with conviction about what we are for. We are not a church fundamentally defined by what we are against. We are, in fact, against certain things because you cannot love God and the world is what God's word says. But the first thing is that we love God that we know him, and that we proclaim who he really is. And so we are a church defined by what we are for. We can go on. The second thing to notice is that John gives us no middle ground in this love-hate relationship. It's not, you can love the brothers, and that's great, that's like Jesus. You can hate the brothers, that's darkness. And then there's this middle ground of apathy towards the brothers, and we're all working on that. No, John says there is love of the brothers, and there is hatred of the brothers. There is light, and there is darkness. And notice even the analogy of light and darkness. The two cannot simultaneously exist. What John is then implying and telling us is that love of the brothers must be action-based. It cannot be mere sentiment or feeling. That love is actually a thing that compels us and propels us towards one another. If it's not, then it is woefully short of the biblical definition of love. And you can actually run this thought experiment for yourself. All you have to do is replace a sentimental view of love for yourself and for the brotherhood with how the Bible speaks about God's love. If God came to you in a dream and he said, I love you, but I just don't have the time to save, to sanctify, to grow or to help, to fix, to be with you, to be present. But every time I think about you, I feel warm and fuzzy things. We would think that that falls woefully short of our needs and even the dignity of what the word love is supposed to mean. Love must compel us towards others. John gives us no license to believe that sitting in some middle state where we merely think about loving others or feel sentimental towards others is acceptable to God. And this is why I know I talk a lot about church membership and about local churches. This is why that is so important. Because when you're a part of a church with all sorts of people from all sorts of family backgrounds and systems, we each come in here, and I know we get all dressed up, but we each come in here with our own dysfunctions, temptations, and sins, do we not? And it's in the midst of that, in that context, which God in his sovereign providence, in his ultimate wisdom, decided he would teach us how to love. The school of love is the local church because you cannot love an idea in the same way that you love actual people. So many pastors don't actually love their congregations because they are never with them. There are horror stories of pastors who have green rooms in the back so that they can wander right before the sermon up to the stage to give their sermon and then vanish during the prayer and you open your eyes and like some magic act, he's gone. 
and he never interacts with his congregants. Why? Because congregations are messy. Why? Because people are messy. But that is not love. The local church is the school of love because the local church is where we find each other as we are. And though we accept, we do not allow people to stay in their states of sin. And so we love people with the love of Christ towards sanctification. Many people, instead of choosing long tenure in churches to grow in love with congregations, they choose to bounce from church to church because they don't like the teaching or the style of music or they're searching for friendlier people or new experience or brighter lights or maybe smaller, maybe quieter. All sorts of reasons people can leave churches today. And by the way, some of them can be legitimate. If this church, friends, if this church ever stops proclaiming the gospel, you walk out the door and if it's me, you fire me, okay? That's our deal. I proclaim the gospel, I point you towards Christ, and when I stop doing that, I stop being worthy of the name pastor. And you let me go. There are reasons to leave a church. There are healthy reasons to leave a church, but far too many of us go because of our preferences. Far too many of us go because of an individualistic mentality. And that's because none of us, myself included, shows up at church on a given Sunday not having been taught, catechized, and enculturated in Western individualism. We're all a product of where we grew up in some way, shape, or form, and we're all working that out of us as the Holy Spirit works Jesus into us. And that means we need to learn how to love like Christ. That means we have to be in a constant process of seeking greater understanding of who he is, what the gospel message is, and how we are to live with one another. The local church filled with God's spirit and submission to God's word is the school that we learn those things in. And by the way, I have a whole album side I could do on that if you want to hear more about our individualistic, anti-institutional age of division. But that being said, all the social and cultural things and all the forces of darkness that might make us despair in this moment as the church. I still have hope. And here's why I have hope, and it is simply this, that the darkness is already passing away. We live in an outgoing era, and I don't mean we're all friendly, I mean this era is going away. And there's a new one coming, and we are in the liminal state. The age between this one and the one to come. And what does it mean that the darkness is passing away? Let me highlight a few things. All your worldly fears and all your worldly ambitions are passing away. If you are human like me, you likely feel anxious or depressed about things on occasion. Just so you know, I have no silver bullets for those. I wish I did. What I can tell you, though, is that there is coming a day where all those things will be done and dealt with. Whatever the outcome, whether you count them in the win column or the loss column of your life, when it's all said and done, you will stand one day whole and complete, accepted by your Creator and Heavenly Father. 
You will be robed in the righteousness that is not your own, but belongs to Christ. You will be housed in the shelter of God the Father's loving kindness, and you will be satisfied each and every moment in his goodness. It takes discipline, but with contemplation, the hope and peace of thinking about those realities can bring an end to certain hardships. But even the peace may feel a long time in coming. Know then in this time, every tear shed and every hardship endured will be put right by the one who knows your pain and toil. In the book of Hebrews, the scriptures say that we have a high priest who is able to sympathize because he has been tempted in all the ways that we are tempted. Have you been wronged by a friend? So was he. Have you been unjustly vilified? So was he. Did you go days and nights without food and in the cold? So did he. These things will pass away, and so too will your worldly ambitions, whether they be financial or career. There's coming a day when you will behold the mystery and the majesty of the resurrected Jesus Christ. And all that we ran after in this life, friends, will seem so silly. You will regret how you invested your identity and time in those things. And you will rejoice that God, in his loving kindness, redeemed each and every moment of it still. You will take, uh, you will take it to the feet of Christ, all those worldly ambitions, and you will lay them down there, and they will seem so small and insignificant in the light of his radiance and his glory. Another way that the darkness passing away helps us. All who don't know the Lord, we then realize are in danger of passing away with the darkness. I don't mean annihilated or ceasing to exist. Based off of my reading of scripture and church tradition, the truth is much more worse than that. But they will lose what they were always meant to know. They will lose who they were always meant to be because they will be eternally separated from their creator and king. Whether hell is physical or psychological, they will lose themselves in its misery. And that, friends, is the reason why we are here. The church exists to make immature disciples, and that means living with intentionality about the gospel. That means growing as students of the Bible, as evangelists, as apologists, as theologians, so that we might be well-equipped to take the gospel to wherever Christ places us. That we might be with our friends, family, co-workers, co-eds, any other relationship that God grants us, that we might be lights shining in the darkness. And so we learn about, we seek to love like, and we are compelled to live for Jesus Christ and the mission of making disciples while there is still time. And the third thing is this, and this brings us back to the mainstream of thought of this message. The reason why the darkness is passing away is because the light is already shining. Jesus, the light of the world has already come, 
the Son of God was made man. He dealt with sin by offering his sinless life in the place of our sinful lives. He died in our place. He resurrected to new life as a sign of his truth and the acceptability of his sacrifice. He went back to the Father so that he might minister on our behalf in God's unbridled presence. And he sent the Holy Spirit and he created the church through whom the light shines in this world. I find the symbol of light a hopeful one because wherever light is, darkness is always passing away. You could find yourself in the darkest cave in the darkest night in the darkest part of the world and you strike one itty bitty match and darkness begins to flee. And that is us. We are a match struck by Christ, ignited by the Holy Spirit, fanned to flame, and the darkness will flee because the light shines. As we live, we live in the light, we help each other. This is the last thing the text says. There is no cause for stumbling for those who are in the light. The Christian life is not about individuals, it is about community. The sociologist Peter Berger, who you might have heard because he trained other famous sociologists like Oz Guinness, developed an idea called the social construction of reality, which is that who we live around and who our community is actually shapes the way we think, the way we live, the way we understand the world to be. The greatest example of this in our day is that there's one factor above all other factors that exponentially rises in the light of something like divorce. If you are going to try and figure out the likelihood of a couple to get divorced, you figure out one thing, their relational proximity to divorce. Why? Because we are social beings made for each other. And friends, as we walk in the light, we display the reality as it actually is and was intended to be, as we rely on the Holy Spirit, as we follow Christ, as we live by his word. It is not just us who is growing, but we are casting the picture of true humanity for the rest of the church, for all around. As we live for Christ, we live in the light, and we let people know that we are gods, that we belong to him. What reality is supposed to be in John 13, which I think John must have been thinking about as he was writing this letter, he records Jesus' words, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Friends, that is the command from the very beginning. So as we transition now to a time of communion, I want you to even think about that. Think about what the word communion means. When we do this together, as we take this bread and juice, we reflect on what Christ has done for us. Plural. Each of us has been brought in here, brought into the church by the goodness of Christ, saved as individuals, into a family, into a church. Would you pray with me as Jim comes up to lead us in communion? Father, we know that we are far, far from perfect. 
We are so grateful for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as we turn to contemplate that now, Lord, I just ask that you would instruct us through these elements about what it means to tangibly love you and the brothers, to be in proper relationship with you and the church, and to pour out of these doors into a world which is so easily divided and so often lonely. But we know why. We know the source of true satisfaction and true belonging and is only found in you, Father. We pray these things in the name of your Son, the one who brings us in by his life and death, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.